If you'll please pray with me. My Lord and Savior, my God and my shield, answer my plea, for you are faithful to your promises. I would pray that you would flood us with the light of understanding so that we can each grasp the significance of your message and see it with clarity. Give us a diligent and obedient spirit and the powerful assistance of your holy grace so that what we may hear or learn, we may apply to your honor and the eternal salvation of our souls. Amen. Our uh, Old Testament scripture reading is found on page 19 of your pew Bibles. It'll be Genesis 21, verses 1 through 14. The Lord visited Sarah, as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah, as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God has spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son, who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me, and everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took the bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. Thank you, Terry. Well, last Sunday was the uh, Oscars. Uh, did anyone watch that? Oscars? Anybody? Okay. A few of us. Yes. I, uh, as you know, my dad is a, a drama director. And so growing up as a kid, we went to the theater a lot. And I can always appreciate a really good performance. And so I'm always kind of curious who won Best Actor, or Best Supporting Actor, Best Supporting Actress. And I, I hadn't seen a lot of the movies because nowadays mostly what we watch are Disney films. Um, I did see, uh, was it Hero 6 won Best Animation? I had seen that, so I was like, that's a good movie. Um, I did get to see uh, the movie Whiplash. Anybody see Whiplash? It was nominated for Best? Yes. And in fact, thanks to Alan Durrett, a member of our congregation, he helped bring that movie to Amarillo. You may not know this, but he's got a little movie club that on Tuesday nights, uh, they have dinner at uh, Blue Sky, or they go to Payways. 
and they watch one of these arts, artistic films that they've been able to bring to the premier cinema in the mall. And uh, he helps bring these to Amarillo, these artistic films. And Whiplash was one of those movies. And uh, J.K. Simmons uh, won Best Supporting Actor for his role in Whiplash. Now, I have to tell you, Whiplash is rated R. There's a lot of foul language in it, so I can't necessarily uh, promote it from the pulpit, but I can tell you that J.K. Simmons does a really good job in this role. Uh, J.K. Simmons plays this uh, teacher, Terrence Fletcher, and uh, the movie's about a young man named Andrew who wants to be the best jazz drummer in the world. He has this passion to do it, and so he uh, enrolls in this uh, very exclusive uh, music school, prestigious music school, and he gets invited as a freshman to play in the award-winning jazz band conducted by Terrence Flesher, played by J.K. Simmons. I want to share a brief clip from that movie so you can get a sense of what the film's about. Five, six, seven. Not quite my tempo. It's all good. No worries. Here we go. Five, six, seven. You're rushing. Here we go. Uh, ready? Okay. Five, six, and... Dragging just a hair. Wait for my cue. Five, six, seven. Rushing. Five, six, and. Dragging. I just hurled a chair at your head, Neiman. I, I don't know. Sure you do. The tempo? Were you rushing or were you dragging? I, I don't know. Oh, wow. Uh, Chuck, you ever anybody throw a chair at you in rehearsal? I... Every day. <laughs> That's intense. I've never seen anyone throw a chair at someone before. I'd love to show the rest of that scene, but in this scene, uh, J.K. Simmons starts to curse, and he starts slapping Andrew around. It's a pretty violent scene, and it's really intense. But Andrew takes the beating because he, he wants to do everything he can to please Terrence Fletcher because he believes in his heart. If I, can, if I can please Terrence Fletcher, this great music director, then I'll be the greatest drummer there is. And so throughout the movie, he's trying as hard as he can to please this very demanding instructor. Who are we trying to please today? We're all trying to please someone, aren't we? If you're in sales, you probably want to please your customers so they'll come back and, and, and purchase even more. If you're a lawyer, you probably want to please your clients and do a good job for them so that if they're ever in legal trouble again, or better yet, they can refer you to other friends of theirs uh, if they ever need legal help. If you're a student, you may want to please your parents or you may want to please your teachers by making good grades and doing good work in school. If you're a husband, you certainly want to please your wife, right? Huh? Amen? Amen? Okay. I, I learned a long time ago, happy wife means happy life, right? So, <clears throat> Whit Holder told me a, a few uh, months ago, he said, if mama's not happy, then no one is happy. And I find that to be true. Whether we want to admit it or not, we're all trying to please someone, aren't we? This desire to please others begins when we're very young, doesn't it? When we're, when we're little kids. I remember when I was a little kid and I would come home with a, a good report card. My parents would be so excited. And so it inspired me to try to bring home a good report card every time. Or, or when they would go to a soccer game and I would score a goal, I could see how excited they were. And so I would try hard to score more goals. Or, 
Or when I was playing football and I scored a touchdown, they'd get excited, so I'd try to score more touchdowns. Or, or when I was playing basketball and I hit a three-pointer, I could tell they were excited, so I, I wanted to score more three-pointers. I, I lived much of my life as a young boy trying to please my parents, to make them happy, because I could tell that when I did well, they were, they were happy. Who are we trying to please today? We're trying to please our spouse, our children, our bosses, our coworkers, our parents, our grandparents, our friends, our neighbors. Who are we trying to please today? Who should we try to please exactly? To find out what God says, please turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 to 31. Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 to 31. However, before I read God's word, uh, please join me in a word of prayer. Holy Spirit, we give you thanks for your written word that you inspired Paul to put pen to paper so that we might have it today. I pray, O Lord, that as we read your word, you might give us eyes to see what you want us to see, ears to hear what you want us to hear, and hearts to be open and transformed at the reading and the preaching of your holy word. Now, the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your holy sight. Through your son's precious name, we pray, and all God's people said, amen. Galatians chapter 4, beginning at verse 21. Listen to the word of the Lord. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through the promise. Now this may be interpreted interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem. For she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. And she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate will one will one One will be more, and those of the one who has a husband. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of the promise. But just as at the time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Here ends the reading of God's word as the prophet Isaiah tells us the grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our Lord stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of the promise. What does it mean to be children of the promise exactly? We've been with us the last several weeks. You know that Paul has been telling the Gentile Christians in Galatia not to listen to the Jewish Christians who have been trying to tell them that they must be circumcised if they want to be saved and fully accepted by God. As we talked about in past sermons, this idea that you have to be circumcised to be saved is completely contrary to the gospel of grace that the Apostle Paul preached to the Galatians originally. The gospel of grace helps us see that we're saved by what Jesus has done for us, not what we need to do for God. Our salvation comes through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. For in his life, Jesus did for us what we could never do for ourselves. He lived in perfect obedience to our Heavenly Father. Then in his death, he died as the perfect sacrifice for our sins. 
And then on the third day, he rose again from the dead, proving to be victorious over sin and death on our behalf. And this great gift that God has given to us is simply received by faith. There's nothing we need to add to it. As Jesus says in the Gospel of John, chapter 19, verse 30, it is finished. There's nothing we need to add to the wonderful sacrifice of Jesus Christ. There's nothing more we need to do. We simply receive it as a free gift through faith. But for many of the Jewish Christians living in the first century, the sacrifice and the resurrection of Jesus simply did not feel like it was enough. After all, they were Jews who had been circumcised on the eighth day, who had proudly spent their entire lives following the laws of Moses, the rules and the rituals. So how could faith alone save you? It just didn't seem to make sense to them. And so they began to teach other Christians, these Gentile Christians, these non-Jewish Christians, that if they really wanted to be accepted by God, if they wanted to be saved, then they needed to be circumcised. They needed to become like a Jew, like, like Jesus, who was a Jew. And they needed to begin to follow the rules and the rituals of the Mosaic law. These Jewish Christians were, were trying to make these Gentile Christians like them, Jewish in their behavior. Because after all, the Jews believed they were God's chosen people. And the sign of God's chosen people in Genesis Chapter 17, of course, is circumcision, right? Now, circumcision, as we know, was given to Abraham in Genesis chapter 17 as a sign of Abraham's, uh, uh, as a sign that Abraham was was God's uh, promised one and that his descendants were, were part of the covenant people of God. As Paul reminds us in our text this morning, and as you can read about in Genesis chapter 16 to 22, Abraham has two sons, doesn't he? One by a slave woman and one by a, uh, his wife, Sarah, as Terry read just a moment ago. In Genesis chapter 16, we read the story of how Sarah becomes impatient with God's promise they're going to have a child. And so Sarah decides to take matters into her own hands, and she convinces her husband that, she should sleep, that um, he should impregnate uh, her slave woman, Hagar. And then Sarah could help raise that child as if it was her own. Now, to us in the 21st century, such an arrangement seems very bizarre to us, but in the ancient times, this was not unusual. Abraham agrees to Sarah's plan, and and he impregnates Hagar. Once Hagar has become pregnant, Hagar begins to look at Sarah with contempt. Sarah becomes upset with Hagar, and so she casts her out. And the Lord convinces Hagar in Genesis chapter 16 to return to Sarah and to have this child. In Genesis chapter 16, verse 11 to 12, we read this about Ishmael, the son who will be born from Hagar. God tells Hagar, that you will bear a son, you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. Now, it's interesting to note that today, Muslims trace their heritage back to Ishmael, not Isaac. He'll be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. The conflict between Jews and Muslims and Muslims and Christians has been going on for a very, very long time, hasn't it? Well, Abraham loves Ishmael and he begins to raise Ishmael as one of as his only son. But in Genesis chapter 17, when Abraham is 99 years old and his wife is 89 years old, God tells Abraham to become circumcised and circumcise every male in his household. And that next year, God is going to bring him a son through his wife, Sarah. Well, Sarah hears this, and she can't believe it, and so she laughs. And that's why their son is called Isaac, which means laughter. 
Isaac is the son of the promise, and Jesus becomes, comes from the genealogy of Isaac, doesn't he? Not Ishmael. Isaac is the son of the free woman, Sarah. Ishmael is the son of the slave woman, Hagar. The grace of God's covenant promise comes through Isaac because Isaac is a miracle child. I mean, who would have thought a 90-year-old woman could give birth to a son? A woman who had previously been barren her entire life, who would have thought she would ever give birth to a son? And yet she does. Yes, Isaac is the son of the promise, not Ishmael. Ishmael is the son of the slave woman, Hagar. Staying with the story of Abraham, Paul in our text this morning points out that anyone who tries to become righteous by following the law ultimately becomes a slave to it. And it's more like Ishmael, the son of Hagar, the slave woman, rather than Isaac, who's the son of the promise, through Sarah, the free woman. As Paul writes in verse 23 of our text this morning, but the son of the slave woman was born according to the flesh. In verse 23, Paul is helping us see that Ishmael ultimately represents man's attempt to fulfill God's promise. God had promised Abraham that he would have a son, but there was no child for many, many years. Sarah becomes unpatient, and so Sarah and Abraham try to take matters into their own hands and and get this plan together with Hagar. And so Hagar has a son, Ishmael, but it's according to the flesh, not according to the promise. But the fact that a 90-year-old Sarah is able to give birth to Isaac shows that he's the son of the promise. He is a miraculous child. And so he's the son of the promise, not Hagar. It's truly a miracle. That's why Paul says that Isaac in verse 29, the son, he calls um, Isaac in verse 29, the son who was born according to the Spirit. Because it was the Spirit of God who did a miraculous work in Sarah's life that she was able to give birth to the son Isaac. Now, I've got a slide here to show you kind of the comparisons that uh, Paul is trying to make here between slavery and freedom. He points out that Hagar is a slave woman. Sarah is the free woman. Ishmael is born according to the flesh. Isaac was born through God's promise. The law of Moses, the law that was given at Mount Sinai, leads to slavery ultimately if you try to fulfill it on your own. But the covenant that was given to Abraham, which precedes the law of Moses, was based on faith, as you will recall in Genesis chapter 15, when Abraham is told that he's going to have a son. It says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. It was his faith, Abraham's faith, that allowed God to call him righteous. The present Jerusalem, which actually Judaism is under the rule of of Rome, is, is ultimately their slaves to Rome, right? But the Jerusalem from above, the heavenly Jerusalem that we'll read about in Revelation, the church, which which, uh, points to this heavenly Jerusalem, is filled with freedom. Righteousness by the law leads to slavery. Righteousness by faith leads to freedom. As you can see, Hagar was a slave woman who gave birth to Ishmael who was born according to the flesh. In our text this morning, Paul argues that Hagar represents the Jewish Christians of Galatia who are arguing that the Gentile Christians must now obey the law of Moses and be circumcised. They are part of present-day Jerusalem, which is under Roman control. These Jewish Christians who have corrupted the gospel of grace by emphasizing the rituals of the Mosaic law are legalists who believe that righteousness can come by the law and by your own effort, your own desires. Sarah, on the other hand, was a a free woman who was Abraham's wife, who miraculously in her old age gave birth to Isaac, a child, a miraculous child, born of a promise, a promise that Abraham believed in. This covenant of promise that was given to Abraham when he had Isaac, when when Isaac was born, was based on faith. 
And as followers of Jesus, we are now children of the promise who inherit this promise through faith. From faith to faith, that is the gospel of grace. So why would the Gentile Christians in Galatia even be tempted to become circumcised and pursue a works-based righteousness? Who are they trying to please? It seems like they're trying to please the Jewish Christians, aren't they? Who are telling them what to do. The Jewish Christians, as Paul has pointed out, Early in Galatians chapter 4, making much of the Galatians so that one day the Galatian Christians, these Gentile Christians, will begin to follow the directions and the teachings of the Jewish Christians and become like the Jews. So they'll make much of the Jewish Christians because the Jewish Christians are experts in how to obey the law of Moses and the rules and the rituals that we find there in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Why are the Gentile Christians working so hard to please these Jewish Christians? Why do we often work so hard to please others? As I mentioned earlier, our desire to please others begins when we're young, doesn't it? As children, we see how our parents are pleased with us when we make good grades, when we do well in school or on the athletic field. And so we we work hard to make good grades or to perform well in the athletic field. I I think if I I can do well in school, I'll be able to win their approval. Now, I want you to know that I believe we should do, try to do as well as we can in school to help reach our God-given potential, but we shouldn't try to make good grades just to please our parents or our teachers. I mean, God's not going to love us anymore whether or not we make good grades. God loves us, as we read in Deuteronomy chapter 7, because He loves us. So who are we trying to please exactly? As adults, we work hard to please our bosses, our supervisors, or our clients, so that we can get rewarded with a big deal or, or a promotion or a raise, right? I remember when I was a consultant with Price Waterhouse, there was a, a, a four-tier system. Uh, you started as a, a level one consultant, and then you could move up to manager, and then from manager, you could move up to director, and from director, eventually you could move up to partner. And the goal for all of us was to become a partner, because then you're in the profit-sharing business, and you make more money, and so all of us wanted to make partner as quickly as we could. But I'm pretty sure God loves a level one consultant as much as he loves a partner at Price Waterhouse. God loves us because he loves us. So who are we trying to please? If you're involved in athletics, the goal is always to win, right? You want to win district championship, then by district, then area, then regionals, then state. When I played basketball in high school, we had this sign over our locker room. It was actually, a, our, uh, my coach was a, a little uh, philosophical. He had a, a quote from Voltaire, a French philosopher. It said, good is the enemy of great. If you're satisfied with good, then you're never going to be great, is the argument. In the movie Whiplash, the music teacher Terrence Fletcher, played by J.K. Simmons, tells his student Andrew, there are no two words in the English language more harmful than good job. He argues that the words good job keeps musicians from becoming great. Tim Duncan, my favorite basketball player, uh, actually grew up with these words that his mom would say to him when he was a little boy, good, better, best, never let it rust, until your good is better and your better is best. That motivated Tim Duncan to win five NBA championships. But I'm pretty sure God would love Tim Duncan the same, whether he won five championships or no championships. God loves us because he loves us. So who are we trying to please? Reminds me of the time I was in college, and uh, our school's football team was playing Austin College. 
The game came down to the final seconds, and our kicker was going to have to kick a 47-yard field goal in a wet, uh, humid day in San Antonio with a slight breeze blowing against him. And in Division Three football, a 47-yard field goal against the breeze on a wet day is, is pretty tough to do. But our kicker lined it up, and he kicked it and went straight through, and we the horn buzzed and we all stormed the field and we pick him up on our shoulders and we were celebrating this great victory over Austin College. Sorry if you went to Austin College. It was so exciting and, and this, the kicker was actually the son of a Presbyterian minister. And the paper, the school paper actually covered the story and his father happened to be at the game, this Presbyterian minister. And they asked him, they said, how did you feel when you saw your son make the game winning field goal? And the kicker's father, who was a Presbyterian minister, said, I was happy for him but I would love him whether he made it or he missed it, I would love him the same. God loves us because he loves us. That's what it means to be a child of the promise. God loves us because he promised that he would love us. Not because of what we do, but because God loves us. God will always love us. You know, there's something powerful about a father's love, isn't there? I don't want to ruin the movie Whiplash for you, uh, so you can cover your ears on this last illustration if you don't want to hear it. Um, but towards the end of the movie, I feel there's this gospel moment in the movie. I felt like it went too fast. I wish they had delayed it a little longer. But towards the end of the movie, there's this great scene where a, a subtle gospel message is, is presented. Terrence Fletcher, the hard-nosed teacher, has been fired from his position at the music school because Andrew has reported that he was abused by him, which was true. And uh, Terrence Fletcher acts like he doesn't know who turned him in, and, and they, he runs into Andrew at a uh, jazz bar, and he, and he invites Andrew to come and play in this new band he's put together in front of a live audience. It's a band of professionals. He said, my drummer's not very good. He can't play Whiplash. I need you to come and, and play Whiplash for us. And so Andrew shows up without a rehearsal, and, and he's there in front of a live audience to play Whiplash. But as the music begins, he realizes the rest of the band, band is playing a completely different song that he doesn't know. And then Terrence Fletcher comes right over to Andrew in the middle of the concert and says, tells Andrew, says, you think I didn't know who turned me in? And Terrence has set this up so that Andrew would be completely humiliated. Well, Terrence is humiliated and he, he walks off the, the stage and, and there his father is on the side and his father gives him this big warm embrace and holds his son for a moment. There's something powerful about a father's love, isn't there? He's being held by his father. And then in the midst of that hug, that long hug, letting, him, letting his son know that he loves him because he loves him. He doesn't care if he messed up. He loves him anyway. Andrew looks up and gets right back on that stage, sits down on those drums. And when the song ends that he doesn't know, he tells the band, he just starts playing the drums. He says, hey, you guys follow my lead. And he plays this amazing display of drums. And he leads the whole band through Whiplash and a bunch of other songs. And it's amazing what Andrew is able to do when he knows that his father loves him because he loves him. Do you know that our Heavenly Father loves us because He loves us? Do you know that our Heavenly Father loves us and He's already demonstrated the full extent of His love that while we were sinners, Christ died for us and there's nothing we can do to make God love us anymore. In fact, we don't even have to worry about trying to please God because God has already shown us that He's pleased with us and that He sent His Son to die for us and He loves us because He loves us. God has already shown us that He's pleased with us that he loves us. And we simply receive God's love as the free gift that it is through faith. Now as ones who are loved by God for who we are, not what we do, shouldn't we seek to love others 
for who they are and not what they do. As I heard Jonah Parr say at the marriage conference a few weeks ago at the Hargrave, she said, we're human beings, not human doings, right? Guided by the Holy Spirit, out of gratitude for God's love for us, we should become conduits of God's love and love others because of who they are. They're human beings created in the very image of God, and we should view them as such. We shouldn't view them according to what they do for us. We should view them according to who they are. Members of humanity created in the image of our almighty God. Now, Paul never says that the law of Moses is bad. Paul never says it's bad. The law of Moses is good. And according to Tim Keller, we should be law-obeying but not law-relying people. We should be law-obeying but not law-relying people. We should obey the law of God, but we should not rely upon the law of God for our justification. For we know that from Jesus that the law of Moses can be summarized by these two basic commandments. We find it in Matthew chapter 22. We're called to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's the Shema. And then from Leviticus 19, Jesus quotes, he says, we should love our neighbor as ourselves. If we love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, then we will naturally obey the first four commandments that we find in the Ten Commandments. If we're loving God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, then we won't worship other gods, will we? If we're loving God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, then we won't make idols, will we? If we're loving God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, then we will honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. If we're honoring God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, then we won't use the Lord's name in vain, will we? And the second commandment is like it. Loving God, as we focus on loving God, then we begin to love the things that God loves, which is our neighbor, right? We begin to view the world as God does, as as his creation. And so we love everyone as ourselves, as you read And so if we focus on loving God and then loving our neighbor, then we'll naturally fill out the remaining six commandments of the Ten Commandments. If we love our neighbor and love others, we'll honor our father and mother. We will not murder. We will not commit adultery. We won't steal our neighbor's things. We won't bear a false witness against our neighbor. We won't covet our neighbor's things. Rather, we'll celebrate the success of our neighbor because we love them, because God loves them. In short, as we seek to love others and love our neighbors ourselves, we'll begin to see them as God sees them. Children of His who were created in His image. Then we'll love others as ourselves by doing to them what we would have done to us if we were them. But I want to be real clear here. To love others, we're going to need God's help, won't we? Through faith in Jesus, we need the Holy Spirit to to guide us and lead us in loving our neighbor as ourselves. So this week, what if we prayed this simple prayer? We said, Lord, help me to see others and to love others the way that you do. Please say that with me. Lord, help me to see others and to love others the way that you do. That's what God wants us to do. To love others and to to see others the way that he does. Of course, we aren't praying this prayer and trying to love our neighbor more so that God will love us more. We're not trying to earn points with God. God already loves us. He's already demonstrated his unconditional, sacrificial love for us. We're praying this prayer and loving others so that God might be glorified and so that our neighbor might experience the love of Christ through us. And they too, through faith in Christ, might become children of the promise. Thanks be to God for His amazing love and His promise to us in Scripture that He loves us because He loves us. 
And so may we seek to love others with that same unconditional love we have received from God. Please join us as we pray. Gracious and loving God, we thank you for your amazing love that you demonstrated toward us in this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. We thank you, Lord, that through faith, we are now children of the promise. We are free, free to live and love, guided by your Spirit. We no longer have to live in the anxiety of trying to earn our way to heaven in obedience to your law. We can see that Christ has already fulfilled the law on our behalf. And so in that freedom, Lord, now we're able to live out the the law of love, loving you in gratitude for all that you've done for us and loving our neighbor because you love them as well. Oh, Lord, help us to see others and to love others the way that you do. We pray this in the strong and precious name of your Son, who is the Christ, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen.